I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we are going to look at the significance of the Lord's entry into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 11. We are going to be picking up here on the Sunday where Jesus enters Jerusalem, what's known as his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and thus begins the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He is purposely and deliberately making his way to Jerusalem. This isn't by chance. This isn't by accident. This is by divine intent. All four Gospels cover this account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking in the steps of the plan of God. That's exactly what's going on. He is walking in the steps of the plan of God. And we know what the ultimate culmination of that is going to be. He's going to be tried. He's going to be He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be convicted, although there is no guilt found in him. He is going to be flogged and beaten and then crucified upon the cross. But glory to God that he will raise on the third day, on the third day, all according to the plan of God, right? So as we look at today, today we're going to see his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And we got to begin to think about, well, what's so significant about this? What is so significant about this? You know, it's an interesting thing. Biblical scholars have traced this date. They've traced this date to Nisan 10, 30 AD, which is April 1st, right? April 1st, Jesus is approximately 33 and a half years old at the time. And the date of April 1st, you know, we'll start off, we'll start off right with this. The date of April 1st, as it fell in the Jewish calendar in that year, was the date that they selected the Passover lamb. So they were to select which lamb was going to be uh, used for their Passover, for their day of atonement. And it just so happened in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, Jesus enters Jerusalem. God presents to the nation Israel, this is the Passover lamb that I am going to use for the atonement of sin. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter 19, Peter makes this statement. It's a glorious statement. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your future way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth. Today we're going to see from the text that despite the crowds, Despite the appearance of worship, despite the religious fervor that's welling up within Jerusalem, most people on that first Palm Sunday, or what we know as Palm Sunday, had the right object of worship, but they had the wrong heart. They worshiped Jesus, 
They hailed him as Messiah. They hailed him as king. The only problem was it wasn't the Messiah they wanted. It wasn't the king they desired. And subsequently, their worship all had the wrong heart. And we will see today that most people reject Jesus in the same manner today, seeking for a Christ of their making and their liking. So let's look at the text. And and my heart for the text today is not that we would go back and just, I know that many of us are familiar with this story. I know that. But what I want to do is I really want to kind of peel it back a little bit more, that we would see the intricacies that are woven in, not only woven in in Scripture, but we see the plan of God, how he brings redemptive history to a climax. So for context, I'll be reading from Matthew 21, verse 1 through 11. And it reads as follows. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go unto the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey there, a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the colt, uh, the, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid, them, uh, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there's certain events that precipitated Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. First of all, Jesus had stayed at Zacchaeus' house. And we see this in, in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He stayed at Zacchaeus' house. You know the story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. But Zacchaeus was a publican. And Zacchaeus, by staying in his house and inviting all of his sinner friends, consequently, this enrages the Pharisees. This man eats and drinks with sinners. Messianic fervor was beginning to peak in Jerusalem. Many people are starting to hear of and to believe that Jesus is going to rise against the Romans. And we see this in Luke 19, verses 11 through 28. And then there was a very climactic event that occurred. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, found in John chapter 11. 
Afterwards, Mary had come and anointed Jesus' feet symbolically in preparation for his burial. John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 cover that. And then there's this important point. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the time, had already conspired among themselves to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus. But they did not want to do that during the Passover holidays because they feared a riot from the crowd. So murder was already brewing in their heart. Right? So there's a lot of things that are occurring that precede Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. If you look at verse 4, Matthew writes, Now this took place, he's talking about Jesus selecting a donkey and a colt. He says, This took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. So get the scene. It's Passover week. One of the three mandatory pilgrim feasts. The other two being the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, which required every adult male in Israel to make a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus, the historian, states that when there would be these uh, mandatory feasts, that the city population in Jerusalem would rise to about 2.7 million people. Now, you got to get the scene here. Passover had not come. The roads are going to be filled with pilgrims going into Jerusalem, right? They're there to make the sacrifice. This is the Day of Atonement, right? There's religious fervor. They've heard of a Jesus who cast out demons, a Jesus who heals the sick, gives sight to the blind, opens the ears of the deaf, causes the lame to walk. There is buzz going on in Jerusalem. And certainly the knowledge that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, one who had been dead four days, well, that certainly played an important part to this. Perhaps people who heard of Jesus saying, who is this prophet? I want to see this person as he comes in. Now, Jesus is in Bethany, right? It's about five miles from Jerusalem. The word has spread. And, you know, there had to be a lot of people there that were also thinking, hey, if this guy can open the eyes of the blind, if he can heal lepers, if he could cause the lame to walk, if he has authority over demons, this is our guy. What's Rome to somebody who can do this? He'll shed Rome. We'll restore the kingdom of David. We will be an independent, sovereign nation, and this will be our king. That thought process going out there. In Matthew 21.5, here Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What takes place, it's important that you realize this here, what takes place is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. 
The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied of Israel's presentation of their king. And I want you to see this because this is a coronation of sorts. Jesus is going to be riding into Jerusalem. They're going to be hailing him as king. But it's not your everyday coronation. God is coming back to his city. God is coming back to his city in the person of his son, Jesus. And we know that scripture tells us in the day of uh, Ezekiel the prophet wrote in Ezekiel 10, 18, and 19, he talks about when the presence of the Lord had left the temple and it left it for good. And he says this, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The glory of the Lord had left. When the temple was originally instituted, when Solomon dedicates the temple, the Shekinah glory of God comes down and fills the temple. The people are on their faces before it, and that was where the Holy Holy of Holies was. It was the dwelling place of God. It was thought that the Spirit of God dwelt there. As a matter of fact, you know the psalm that says, I lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. That is a psalm of pilgrimage. As they were heading up to Zion, you always go up to Zion. The Temple Mount is always up to Zion. As they would march in pilgrimage up to the up to Zion, and they would see the glorious temple gleaming in the sun. That's when the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. They would sing that as they're marching to Zion. But we know that the Spirit of God left the temple. We know the temple was ransacked in 586 B.C. We know that Nehemiah tried to come again, but what he did was really build the outer walls. It wasn't until Herod the Great, in order to find appeasement for the Jewish people, as their proxy king said, I'll tell you what, I will rebuild the temple for you. And it wasn't completed until A.D. 64. And now the prophet... Matthew quotes the prophet Zechariah saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Listen, this use of a donkey, by the way, we got to get this. We got to understand this. It wasn't because that's what was available. What is a donkey? A donkey is a beast of burden. And Jesus didn't even ride the mother donkey. He rode the colt. This is showing the humility of Christ as he's going to enter Jerusalem. Now, during a coronation, we may be used to some of the things that you may have seen in historical films or We're going to see it this summer, I think. This summer is the coronation of King Charles, right? And if you take a look at the coronation of the king, right, it's usually preceded by great pomp and great fanfare, and they they have expensive jewels, and there's royal coaches, and armies parade back and forth, and 
and great dignitaries come for these coronations. And yet here is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will ride into the city of God. He will ride into the city that he is the rightful king. And what does he have? But a ragtag group of pilgrims and disciples and come riding in on a colt of a donkey. You notice that it's two, right? He said, get the mother and get the colt. And you might ask, why get the mother? Because the colt is, one of the gospels says, he took a colt that was never ridden, right? If it's never ridden, it's usually going to resist, it's going to buck. But with the mother there, it will follow the mother. So here we see the lowly, the lowliness, the the humility of Christ as he does that. And you know, think about it another way. If you, if you ever read about the Caesars, when, when the Caesars would go out or a great Roman military general would go out and he would conquer a territory for Rome, he would bring back to Rome the spoils. And the way that that would go is he would come into Rome and the first thing that would be in the Possession would be the prisoners that he has taken that now are going to be slaves of Rome or be sent into the Roman games. And a long line of prisoners would precede him. And then would come the conquering army and they would come marching proudly. And then come the spoils that they were able to capture from the land and some of the exotic animals they took from the land. And then, finally then, would come the conquering general. And he would not be riding on a donkey. Instead, he would be riding on a mighty steed or led in a procession by a chariot of mighty steeds and homage would be done to him. Oh, here comes the great general. Here comes the great warrior. Christ didn't come with an army. Christ didn't come in that manner. As a matter of fact, Christ comes very similar to the manner in which he was born. With humility. In a manger. And the most amazing thing of this is that all Israel has the opportunity on that day to receive their Messiah. And they don't. They don't. They didn't want a suffering Messiah. They wanted that warrior king like David. They wanted that political military uh, leader like David. And you know what's the saddest part of all of this? Not only on that Sunday, but on that Friday... Pilate stood in front of the nation and said, who do I release to you? Do I release to you this Jesus? The one that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, we have no king but Caesar. And said, so what should I do? I find no guilt in this man. I'm going to release to you someone today. This is my tradition. I'm going to do it. And the nation cried out, give us a murderer in Barabbas. Listen, the nation rejects. And this isn't mere 
I don't understand who Jesus is. This is outward rejection of Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the disciples did just as Jesus directed, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their garments on which he sat. And we, we see here in perfect fulfillment, Jesus mounts the colt, and he begins his ride to Jerusalem. He's beginning his ride to Jerusalem. We're going to see that crowds are going to precede him. Crowds are going to follow him. A mass of people following. And what are they doing, by the way? They're following him and praising who? They're praising God. They're praising God. What a contrast, right? Right worship, wrong heart. Right worship, wrong heart. Look at verse 8. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, and the multitudes going before him and those who were followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I want to tell you a few things here. The waving of palm trees, right? The waving, the cutting down, the waving of palm trees had become kind of a nationalistic sign. That's what it had become, which signaled the fervent hope that Messiah would come, that Messiah would come and deliver the nation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that in addition to the waving and the throwing of palm branches in the road, people were laying their garments and their outer cloaks on the road before him as a sign of humility and submission to Christ. Now, I want to tell you something. The laying of the garments. We see this was done in 2 Kings when Jehu was coronated as king, right? They took their garments, they laid them, they took the palm branches, they laid them, which is a sign of submission. It's a sign of submission. It's almost as saying, Lord, you have full authority over me. You could walk all over me. Your authority is is great. It's all yours. And so they take their outer cloaks, they lay them in the road. They spread their garments out, a welcoming sign for a king. Listen, there's nothing here that says they don't know what they're doing. I I really want to point this out. I I spoke a little bit about this on Tuesday night, about the heart and accountability to God. The heart and accountability to God. This isn't, they're not lost in intellectual thought here. They know the word of God. And I'm going to show you in just a minute how they use the word of God. We see here that they're thinking in their mind, this is Messiah. This is Messiah. But here's the interesting thing. That's not enough for salvation. Listen, letting people know that this is Christ. That there is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Many people know that he died upon the cross. 
Many people know that he was buried in the tomb. Many people know that he rose again on the third day. Many people know that he is the great judge of whom we will all give an account to. And yet, with the knowledge of that, it is insufficient for salvation. It's insufficient for salvation. Salvation is not having mere intellectual knowledge of the gospel. To be saved, one must submit yourself completely and wholly and come with repentance and faith and trust nothing else for your salvation. This morning as I was driving to church this morning, I passed another church and it backed up onto the road. And there was a little confusion there. Because people were trying to make a left, people coming were making a right, and there was a traffic jam to get in. Yet for the other 51 Sundays that I drive here, there's never a traffic jam there. Many people are attending church today that are attending church with the right object of worship. Jesus Christ, this is Palm Sunday. We're commencing the Holy Week. But have the wrong heart. And the knowledge that it was Christ who rode into Jerusalem, that it was Christ who went up on the cross, that it was Christ who suffered and died, that it was Christ who rose again, is nothing but mere intellectual data but does not change the heart. Church, listen, God is really, I feel impressed this upon. We must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. We cannot afford to be people that are going to have the right object of worship with wrong hearts. But we must be a people that whose hearts are fully submitted to Christ. Father, do with me as you will. Father, be it done to me as you will. Father, I surrender everything. I have died. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who liveth in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And we got to be people that get to the point that we fully understand what is obedience. And we got to be people that get to the point that we look at God and we cannot look at him lightly or casually. And we cannot dismiss our sins in the face of God. But we know that we serve a risen Savior who is holy, righteous, true, and just, and whom we will give an account. Look at verse 9. We read this in the multitudes going before him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, I'm going to share something with you. There's, there's a lot of dialogue that people say, well, the Jewish people did not understand who was Jesus. 
They didn't understand who he was. That they, the Jewish people never, never thought he was Messiah. Listen, they're quoting directly from Psalm 118. Directly from Psalm 118. As a matter of fact, Psalm 118 plays such a considerable role in the final week of Jesus' life. It's Psalm 118 is associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last song of the Halal, which is sung annually at the at the Passover. Turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 118. We read it in our scripture reading. I just want to show you something here. Psalm 118. This is the coronation psalm, by the way, the processional psalm. But I just for context's sake, I'd like you to pick up from verse 19, Psalm 118, 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and then I shall enter through them, and I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. Now look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. As a matter of fact, do you know after the Passover, I think it's Luke's gospel says that after the Passover, they left and they sang a hymn. They sang Psalm 118. And they sang this. The stone which the builders rejected have become the chief cornerstone. And look what it says. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. What do they sing? Go back to Matthew 21, 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, son of David, messianic term. Messianic term, son of David. He was the one who would rule on the throne of David forever and ever. Right there, messianic term. They're saying this to who? They're saying it to Jesus. The son of David, the Messiah. Look what else. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who comes in the name of Yahweh. This is unmistakable. Unmistakable. They cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Hoshiana in the highest. What's in the highest? It means in the realms of God. You know what Hosanna means? Hosanna means God save. God save. 
Bring salvation now. They have a clue. They have a clue. And they're calling out. The people marvel at God that the stone that was rejected is the cornerstone and they cry out that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. This is all religious. This is all the word of God. There's no mistaking this. They knew what they were doing. And I don't say that to cast aspersion. I, I want you to know that. And I don't say that to say that they were wrong and we were right. That's not the point. The point is, as Christ approaches the city of Jerusalem, the people that are heading to Jerusalem or for the mandatory feast who have heard about Jesus who are singing what's going on, they there are believing the Messiah is in their midst. And they're ascribing to him messianic praise. Messianic praise. And by the way, the gospel writers make no mistake in using Psalm 118 and showing that Jesus indeed is the rightful king of Israel, that Jesus himself is the rightful Messiah. Matt uses, Matthew uses the term son of David. Mark uses the coming kingdom of our father David and our king. They are pointing to the fact that Christ's revelation not only was true, but remember when the Pharisees said to him, hey, Stop your disciples from saying this. Remember what Jesus said to them? He said, listen, if they don't do it, even the stones would cry out. And stones are usually associated in Old Testament uh, imagery at, with judgments. The stones are going to cry out. The stones are going to judge. You know what's happening here? Unbelievers, the stones are crying out who Christ is. I like what Paul says in, in Philippians 2 that God has exalted him and given him the name that is above all names, yes, that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Adonai to the glory of God the Father. Look at verses 10 and 11. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. Now, I want you to catch the imagery here. I really want you to catch the imagery. Many in the crowd are believing that they have the deliverer from Rome. And others are bearing witness to the great things he's doing that he has done. All in the face of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the very people who want to murder him. Don't lose that thought. Now, I want you to show, I want you. So there's, there's the accountability of those people. But look at the accountability of Jesus. Jesus is deliberately walking in the will and in the plan of the Father to bring these things about. Do you know in redemption, 
there's no plan B. When God gave us his son and he gave us his son for forgiveness of sin, he never says, oops, if that doesn't work, what am I going to do? What's plan B? Do you know in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, there was no plan B. This is the fulfillment. This is the zenith. This is the height of redemptive history. It's taking place. And praise God that we have the word of God to be able to read this and that we can trust this word of God that it is true. John 12, 17 tells us this. The multitudes who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave were bearing witness to him. Get this scene. By the way, you know who else is in the, in the procession with Jesus? Lazarus himself. A few days ago, he was laying cold and flat in the tomb, and now he's with Jesus as the procession is heading into Jerusalem. And John says here, the multitude, in that multitude were people who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. So can you imagine? Who is this? Hey, I saw this guy just a few days ago. He brought this man out of the tomb. And others say, he raises the dead. And others are saying, he heals the blind. And he gives sight to the blind and hearing to the lame. And he heals lepers. And probably the disciples saying, you should have been with me on the boat. When he told the winds, be still, be silent. And even the winds and the waves obeyed him. John 12, 18 says, for this cause also, the multitude went and met him because he performed this sign. So just imagine the ones that are preceding him. Hey, Jesus is following us. The one who raised him from the dead. The people go as they're heading to Jerusalem, hear this, and they go, this is the one who raised the one from the dead? I'm coming out. I'm coming out. And the people are, 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 are laying their cloaks and their garments in the road, and they're waving palm branches, and they're singing from Psalm 118, Messiah. Can you get the scene here? This is nuts. And it's amazing that despite all the miracles that they talk about and everything that Jesus did to that point, for most of them, it was not sufficient to create belief in the true Christ. Why is that? Because ever since the dawn of time, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Listen, many in that crowd days later will become very disenchanted with Jesus. They'll become disenchanted. Why? Because he's not leading a revolution. Nothing ticks me off more when I hear these liberal scholars and say, Jesus was a revolutionary. Jesus was here to overthrow wicked government. When, when, when did he do that? He never did it. Many in that crowd will become disenchanted with Jesus. And several days later, they'd be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Look at verse 11. And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I, I, want, you to, I want you to get this imagery here. The Old Testament scriptures foretold of a Messiah 
that would hold three offices. He would be a prophet. He would be a priest. And he would be a king. On his entrance here, Christ fulfills two of those offices. Who is this? This is the prophet Jesus. And there he is. He fulfills the the office of prophet, the one that Moses said, one will come who will be greater than I. Pay attention to him. He's going to have the words of truth. There Jesus fulfills the office of prophet. And there he comes as a king as they are ascribing messianic kingship to him. And he's coming in as a king. But you know, on Friday, he will fill, fulfill the office of priest. The priest was the one who offered the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But he will not come as an ordinary priest. He will come as the great high priest. And in the fulfillment of that office, rather than taking a dead goat or a dead lamb and offering up for the atonement of the sins, the great high priest will become the sacrifice. And he will offer himself for the forgiveness of sin. John 12, 16 says this, these things his disciples did not understand. When it says understand, it means they didn't perceive it yet. They didn't get it yet at first. But when Jesus was glorified, after he was resurrected, they remembered these things that were written of him that they had done, that, that they had done them to him. John's gospel states that seeing the crowds with such adulation, the Pharisees realized they have a problem. They have a bigger problem than what they originally thought. John 12, 19, the Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are doing no good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. But you know what? Jesus is not looking or basking in the praise and the adulation. Jesus' heart is broken. John 19, Luke 19, verses 41 to 44, you may want to turn there, gives us a real expanded view of Jesus' heart. Luke 19, 41 to 44. It reads as follows. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. I want to stop there real quick. That word wept, I just want to give you a sense for that word. It means expressing loud, uncontrollable, audible grief. Jesus didn't enter the city with little tears running down. Jesus entered the city. His heart was grieved as he looked around and he saw the mass of humanity and he saw the mass of unbelief. Jesus enters the city after that great processional. He enters the city and he cries. Verse 42, and he said, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground. 
you and the children within you. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Jesus had told the Pharisees previously, hey, even Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And one is here that is greater than Jonah. This hardened unbelief that was made manifest in the people of Israel. And Jesus, Jesus weeps. He's broken. It's audible weeping. He's crying and sobbing out loud. And let me ask you a question. What kind of king comes into his coronation crying and broken? Christ knew that in A.D. 70, after several insurrections in the city of Jerusalem, that the Romans would lay siege to the city, that they would eventually build ramparts on every side of the city. And under the leadership of Titus Vespasian, they will enter the city and create such a slaughter. And the temple will be torn down stone by stone. All of the ancient records of Israel's tribal lineage is gone. By the way, it's an interesting thing, right? Supposedly, the Jews today are waiting for the Messiah to return. So when the Messiah returns, the Bible says he must be from the tribe of Judah. He must be. Yet there's no record that exists for any person, for any Jew to prove what tribe he would be from. We see an amazing contrast here in this biblical account of praise and adulation given with a wrong heart, of the king receiving worship that he so rightly deserves being rendered by those who are far from God. As we enter this holy week, as we celebrate, and we do celebrate Christ's death and resurrection and his victory over the grave, many across our country and nation will have the right object of worship, Christ, but they will come with the wrong heart. Isn't there something wrong that most churches, I'll use the term I don't like using, Easter Sundays like the Super Bowl? Everybody gets geared up, gets geared up. Many know that Christ came to die and save sinners, that he rose again on the third day, that there is salvation only in him. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus died to save sinners among which I am the foremost, says the Apostle Paul. Many will profess with their lips that they are followers of Jesus. But their hearts and their actions will deny that profession. Some in the crowd that they wanted a military messiah. They wanted a military messiah. 
Some wanted a political king to rule over Israel. Most wanted a Messiah and a Christ of their liking. That's what they really wanted. They didn't want the suffering servant of Isaiah and not the Christ that they were hailing and they were worshiping on that day. And it is the same today. Some want a Christ who forgives sins but does not sanctify. Lord, I don't want to go to hell. But don't bother me with sanctification and holiness and that type of stuff. I got no place for that. Some want a Christ who promises new life, but they don't want him to be Lord of their life. And I'll tell you what, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Jesus himself tells us who the believer is, what the believer looks like. In John 14, verses 23 through 24, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father. Listen, salvation is about the heart. It's about the heart. You might say, Pastor, then what must I do to be saved? And Peter gives a great answer to this question in Acts 3.10. He says this, Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What must you do to be saved? Repent of your sins. Cry out to God to save you. Trust him completely and trust him with your very life that neither is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must, we must, we must be saved. You're not saved through a church. You're not saved through baptism. You are not saved because you know the Bible. You're not saved because you have a theological degree. You're not saved because your mother and father were Christians and you followed in the same religious tradition. You are saved only as you put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus completely and wholly. And guess what he does? He changes your Life, you no longer remain the same. The bondage of sin is broken. Hey, a true Christian is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. What happened to all the old things? What happened to the sins I used to do? All the old things are past. What about my life, Lord? Everything has become New. Christians are known by their fruits. Jesus made this statement, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Matthew 7, 16. You can't be holy and good and bad at the same time. You can't be dominated by sin but be a, 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 a Christian. And that assurance, everybody worries about assurance. Assurance is based upon self-examination to the word of God. It gives us the standard. John wrote, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. 1 John 5, verse 11. I'll say it again. I've said it before. I'll say it again. We must get the gospel right. 
Eternal life depends on that. Eternal life depends on that. Listen, Christ is coming again. But this time he's not riding on a donkey. And he's not coming crying. Christ is coming to judge the righteous and the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 1, 7 and 8 says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. But you know what? A great coronation is coming. I'll close with this. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. This is a coronation that our Christ is going to deserve. Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. In his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Lagos, the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and white and clean were following him on their white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of lords this will be the triumphant entry of our lord jesus christ and his enemies will be slain by the very logos of god by the word of god and the righteous shall reign with him and the greatest thing is that if you are in christ you'll be there let's bow our heads in a word of prayer